We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Honey, I switched the family to Boost Mobile and we got so much more. Like what? Well, we got four free LG Stylo 5 phones, four lines for just $25 per line per month. I smashed up the car and unlimited gigs. Wait, did you say you smashed up the car? Yes, it's completely smashed, but four free phones. Switch to Boost and get four lines for just $25 per line per month. Four free phones with unlimited gigs, all on our super reliable, super fast nationwide network. Boost Mobile, the switch that gives you more. Terms and conditions apply. New customers only. Visit BoostMobile.com for details. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. That is the voice of my good friend J.T. Raymond. We have for the longest time said that he needs to become the voice of the Gators. Maybe after that sweet little opening to this podcast, he will get a shot. Welcome back to the Gator Nation football podcast. It is July. SEC media days have finished. Alan Williams is in Colorado. I'm James DiVirgilio in the studio in Gainesville, Florida. Here to take Alan's place today, I have two very special guests. I have both of these gentlemen with me. Each of them have been mentioned on multiple podcasts, and here they are today co-hosting. I'm really excited about what we're going to get into. First, I have JT Raymond, the mouth of the South, the voice of reason, he calls himself, uh, a Gator <laughs> super fan since birth. JT, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, really appreciate it, James, and excited to be here. 
Second, I have Tyler Rummery. He's our message board guru. To be transparent and fair, most of Gator news I hear about first, if it's a rumor or it's like way underneath things, it comes from Tyler. And I don't want Tyler to reveal what his screen name is because maybe he'll get in trouble. But Tyler's been great throughout the years on all sorts of inside information on the Gators or just what the message board community feels like. Uh, Tyler's also one of my best friends from way back in childhood. So we've been friends for, you know, like 30 years almost. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. And I'd just like to point out that I am the first subscriber to Gator Nation football podcast. That is true. That is a big distinction. You know, we started from the bottom. Now we're here. If you're new to this podcast, we started five years ago, obviously, with with nobody like any podcast would start. And we hoped just 100 people would listen. And now we're, you know, we've reached many thousands um, per episode, peaking as high as 15,000 on some and, you know, moving around. But we started from the bottom and Tyler was there at the bottom with us. So Tyler, you'll always be appreciated for that. A loyal supporter and again, a supplier of information. Uh, so with that, if you like this episode, if you love this episode, please consider dropping us a like on Facebook, following us on Twitter, or most importantly, becoming a patron on Patreon. If you're new to the show, the term dono is going to be something you'll be hearing. Some of you love it. Some of you hate it. But that's why we do it. It's kind of a fun, memorable term. But you can drop us a dono, large dono, medium dono, small dono, hundo bomb. If you don't know what those things mean, you'll get used to them. Uh, our top supporter and still the king of this gator jungle, Alexander Leventhal. Uh, he's been the top monthly contributor since we started donations on Patreon. Alexander, you're the man. We love and appreciate that support. And again, if you love the content, head on to Patreon. You can follow the links in any of our social media pages. And you can very quickly and very easily support the show. Alan and I certainly appreciate it. All right, Tyler. All right, JT. Let's get into the good stuff. It's July. Football's within 40 days. The Gators are kicking off the college football season for just about everybody on a solo Saturday on August 24th. What is your excitement level right now? Let's start with you, JT. Well, James, I don't think I could be more excited. Uh, for a brief introduction, for those of you who don't know who I am or where I come from, I actually grew up in Jacksonville. I've been a Gator fan since about 1999 with the days of Alex Brown and Jesse Palmer and Lito Shepard and, and all those Gator greats with Spurrier. Uh, I went to the University of Florida from 2009 to 2013, so I saw Tebow's uh, final year, the only year where the Gators were actually undefeated in that season. And now I live in uh, Fort Myers here uh, in the state of Florida and still try to go to a few games every single year. And so as far as this year compared to last year, last year, myself included, I think I was a little underwhelmed at first with the uh, hiring of Mullen. There's certainly bigger names like Scott Frost out there that like, you know what, this, this seems like the shiny object. This is the person that I think will be the best to lead uh, the University of Florida Gator football team. That being said, what Mullen did over the course of last year, improving his team week over week, um, making giant steps over a couple of different points over the course of last year, getting to 10 wins, I don't think I could be more excited for what, the, what this year brings. I, I will say this. I think this is the best football team Mullen has ever had the ability to coach. I think we – top to bottom have one of the best rosters as far as starters go and if we stay healthy i certainly think we can compete for a national championship this year hot take national championship jt you're going to learn more throughout the podcast about how often jt thinks we'll compete for a national championship and i, I can't wait to get his actual predicted record at the end of the show tyler how about you how excited are you at this point of the season 
Well, you know me, James. Every year I eat this stuff up. So we're getting ready to get into August, and I, I eat, sleep, drink it. It's great. I'm so excited for it. And the fact that we get to open up with Miami makes it all that better. Um, I think what Mullen has done is, and I, I was a big pro Mullen guy from the beginning. Uh, I know, James, you were not. Um, a lot of people were like, uh, like JT said, Scott Frost, he's the man, he's the man. And, and, and I thought Scott Frost was a good choice, but I thought after looking at the resume of Mullen, Mullen was the better choice. He had a, a better resume. He's been in the SEC. He knows the SEC. He knows the University of Florida. He's won two titles as an offensive coordinator for the University of Florida. One I had was at, which was with you in Glendale, Arizona, when we watched us destroy Ohio State. So the fact that uh, we got Mullen and what he did, like JT said, last year was just phenomenal. Like There was definitely some ups and downs, but first season – first coach totally different system and i thought he did a phenomenal job so i'm really excited about this game on the 24th yeah you mentioned a couple of good points there uh, the hiring of dan mullen you know obviously i was very high on scott frost i think scott frost was and still is sort of like the moonshot guy he was the guy that may have taken you to urban meyer level heights if if he hit and dan mullen uh, as i've said on this podcast many times has already exceeded my expectations We'll find out if he answers the ultimate question, which is, can you win a championship? And I think the athletic director at Florida, whether it's Scott Strickland or me or you or JT, uh, the job is to hire someone who can win a national title. Winning 10 games is nice, but you have to win a national title. And that's just is what it is at one of the 15 schools in the country that can actually win one. So far, so good. Uh, there's a lot of question marks. I think my excitement level at this point in the season is is lower. Um a couple of reasons. One, you know, we're replacing four offensive linemen. There's some good narratives there that maybe we're not going to be concerned about. We have seven scholarship corners. That's very, very thin for a program of our size. Uh, and, you know, we have question marks that we have to answer. However, the program, I think it's safe to say, and I think all three of us agree with this, is absolutely on what I would consider to be stable footing. I don't expect us to see these these really volatile seasons that we had out of Will Muschamp, that we had out of, of Jim McElwain. You're not going to have that that low floor, which we originally said with Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen's a high floor guy. He could be a high floor, low ceiling guy, which is the worst case scenario. Or Tyler, in your case, or JT, your case, he could be a high floor, high ceiling guy, which puts him as one of the top five coaches in the game. And we're certainly all hoping for that. So this past offseason, I think the biggest story for Florida fans, without a doubt, has been all of the players that we have lost. We've lost 11 total players. 11 guys, four from the class of 2019. Two of those guys never got in, but I'm going to count them as our 11. And the remaining guys transferred out into the transfer portal. That is a much higher number than other programs have experienced. Uh, some like Missouri have experienced none, even though they wind up facing a postseason ban. We're going to walk through this, but I want to start through this lens. 11 players that we have lost, and here they are. Defensive end, Antonius Clayton. He was a five-star by some services, a four by others, he rarely played, kind of a guy that was later on in his career and was struggling. Wide receiver Daquan Green, a four-star. Defensive end Malik Langham, a four-star. Center TJ McCoy, a three-star. Most offensive linemen are three-stars. Well, McCoy was not a heralded guy. Brian Edwards, a three-star. A deep three-star. Again, not a heralded guy. Linebacker Kylan Johnson, three-star. Same story for him. And then linebacker Rashad Jackson, a three-star. I think we even said on the podcast that Rashad's transfer was a good one. 
And then from the 2019 class, we lost cornerback Chris Steele, top 50 guy, five-star by some services, four-star, uh, you know, by most. Quarterback Jalen Jones, four-star. Then we lost Dimwon Black due to academics, as well as offensive lineman uh, DeYavi Hammond. So where we stand right now is we've lost a significant portion of our first top 10 class since 2014, which obviously is no longer a top 10 class. It's really important as a fan to recognize the 2019 class is not a top 10 class anymore. It's fallen back some. So it's going to get written down that way. It's not going to remain that way. And then we've lost, you know, none of these guys we just mentioned are, are going to be frontline starters, but you're going to lose depth. All right, how concerned are either one of you about how many players have exited this offseason? Minimally concerned, very concerned. Where are you on that scale? We'll start with you, Tyler. Um, it definitely is a concerning thing that um, when you when you see the four players that did leave, uh, I think when it comes to Chris Steele, there's a lot of stuff out there. Obviously, he was a highly rated guy. Um, some of the stuff that you hear out there is is lack of work ethic. Uh, he comes out of high school where he's like the man. He comes in to a, a program where he's thousands of miles away from his hometown, and um, he's not the man. Like, and, and then you get into Savage's work pro, uh, workout program, and he, Savage just puts you to the test he's gonna he's gonna make you work uh i think for some of the other guys like losing black um we may not have lost him he could eventually go to juco route finish that up and then still come in later so there's still that possibility but with the academic academic people that don't qualify they don't count as counters so you can take a risk in a high uh, quality guy like that and then still get that counter back because they never uh enrolled into school or qualified um losing the offensive lineman definitely hurt um but the benefit is that we we took such a big class last year so we're still building that up but anytime you lose a high quality offensive lineman to academics um is tough but then again he can still has a chance to transfer in still too and then the defense alignment um all the reports from him was just wasn't getting it uh, at all in practice looked really, really, really bad. Did not look like a four star at all. And obviously development and all that stuff can change. But and then Jalen Jones was uh, a mental mistake. He did something stupid and basically uh, basically had to transfer out. So overall losing those players uh, hurts. But there's, I mean, you get some people out of the team that don't need to be there that that can be overall benefit throughout the years. Yeah, I look at this from a couple of different perspectives. And I think for starters, I don't know what it is, but it feels like every single offseason, uh, just bad things happen. And for the love of God, I cannot wait for these 40 days to go by to like holding our breath and making sure no one's getting suspended. No, no other stories are, are coming up because it certainly doesn't seem like good things happen uh, during the summer for the Florida Gators. But when I think about like this particular situation, I think from like were a lot of these players actually going to make an impact on the field this year? Realistically, Chris Steele should have been able to make an impact. He probably would have been the fourth uh, corner on our team and certainly nice depth uh, if we go into the dime or if we need him, if somebody goes down or is injured or, or suspended. Um, that probably is going to be the biggest hurt. 
this year, I don't know if we're going to see like – I don't think we're going to see as bad of ramifications for losing all these players. That being said, moving on, we have a lot of seniors, a lot of juniors, a lot of people that could end up going to the draft next year. And the cupboard's pretty bare if we look at the 2020-2021 as it stands right now. So it's going to be all that much more important that Mullen not only shores up his 2020 recruiting class, but also uses some different creative ways uh, to get some more people on the team, whether that's through the transfer portal, whether that's through uh, grad transfers or, or other things, which is something that he's already starting to do with uh, bringing in that defense alignment from Louisville. But what, what are your thoughts here, James? I separate this into two categories. The guys that have transferred that were already on the roster and on the team for more than early enrollee status, that's great. That's fantastic. That's normal attrition when you're building a program. And this is what happens in college football. This is what happens with good coaches. Again, you set your culture. You set your standard. Guys begin to figure out they may not play a lot. They may be kind of buried a little bit. Uh, And in that case, am I saying it's best for the player to transfer? Most of the time, it isn't. Most of the time, it really, truly isn't. There's a reason why you're buried on the depth chart in the first place, but it's good for the culture. You really only want guys around your culture that are going to be competing. Along the recruiting side, I said this on our recruiting episode, but just to rehash that, you can't afford to be losing guys like Chris Steele and Jalen Jones. You can't do it. You just cannot do it. You know, We, on average, have been signing about two to three at the highest top 100 players, uh, and you, you lose one in Chris Steele, you just you just can't afford to do that. You have to have those guys in your team. It's going to happen sometimes. I think if we're Alabama or we're Georgia or we're other teams that are pulling in more highly ranked players consistently, when this happens, you say, hey, if you get nine or 10 of those guys, one of them's going to go. Case of Florida, it's, it's just too crucial at this stage of our development to lose those kind of guys. Those are big misses. And then Tyler, I think you touched on a good point that Dan Mullen talked about during media days which is, hey, we're comfortable taking risks with some of these academic guys. It's kind of built into the program. And I don't have a problem with that. The problem is you've got one of your highest ranked wide receivers who looks like Tyler. He's going to wind up getting in and a Jari Henderson, which is good. You've got one of your best O-linemen and Wadrick Wilson who's got a really weird legal issue coming from the islands. And those, are, those aren't things you can always control as a coach. But for me, the California experiment, which we've well covered on this show, if you're unfamiliar with that, you know, Florida tried very hard to recruit the state of California. It was a cataclysmic fail and a waste of time, uh, as evidenced really by by Chris Steele's kind of departure. And he himself is just a rogue guy. Can you always identify that? No, you can't. Can you hold the coaches, you know, to the fire for every guy that leaves? No, you can't. But obviously, at this stage, every recruiting class is really important when you're building. And I think you have to look at it for what it is. The players that were on the team and left, not much of a big deal, part of a culture change. The early guys that just came in that you've recruited to be the next part of your franchise, so to speak, that stuff matters. There's two of them that are gone. A couple other guys, like you said, Tyler, academics. But at this point in time, it's it's leaving us a little thin at some places. So we'll see where that takes us. And, and with that, it's a perfect chance for us to actually look at recruiting. Now, we're not going to talk about the individual players. We did the same thing last year. We're going to primarily look at the progress of where we are as a program. And this is a great way to kind of earmark what's been happening uh, from one year to the next. We talked a lot at nauseum about how Dan Mullen seems to be one of the game's best developmental coaches. He's phenomenally skilled at this. However, to beat teams that are more talented than him, he's going to need to close the talent gap to where he's at least a tier or two beneath them. No more. So the good news for our 2020 class is the story is much rosier at this point of the year than it was last year. Right now, we're ranked ninth. 
We're fourth in the SEC. At this point last year, we were a woeful 34th. There were a lot of different commentaries on what was going on, and obviously we pulled out a really good finish, but that was to show you why we had so many conversations going into the season about where the program was. So much better this year. We currently have two top 100 players, nine top 300 players. You'll hear me talk a lot about needing to get the top 50 players, needing to get more top 100 players. So we have two. Last year we had zero, and we only had three top 300. Uh, We have 10 four stars. Last year we had four, right? So we're doubling almost all these categories. And we still have a lot of three stars for being a top 10 recruiting class. We have eight three stars, which is a heavy amount. Three of those are offensive linemen, and a lot of O-linemen tend to be in that category. By comparison, Florida State, who seems to be like in the midst of total shambles, is actually ranked 13th. They have no one in the top 100, which is truly insane for Florida State if you go back and look at their recruiting classes. Eight in the top 300, not a single five-star for them, also unusual. They do have a bunch of four-stars and seven three-stars. Now, we're not going to talk a lot today about other very important things, which Tyler's actually very well-versed in, which is, you know, what kind of class are you putting together? What kind of guys do you need? What kind of year are you in recruiting-wise? Um I'm really primarily just looking at the trend of top-level talent recruiting. So to give you an idea, who's the best right now, right? Who's having a stratospheric year recruiting? It's Clemson. If you just wake up right now and you don't know what's going on the recruiting trail, it's all Clemson, right? Clemson's ranked number one. They have a whopping 10 players in the top 100. 10 players. One-tenth of the top 100 is currently committed to go to Clemson. They have five. That's unbelievable. Five stars. 14 in the top 300. It's absolutely insane. It's crazy what they're putting together right now. Uh, it's it's unreal. And so that's obviously a rocket ship, a moonshot, right? That's out alabama Alabama. And then Bama's behind them, and then Georgia's behind them. And then you have like these kind of tiers like we talk about. So that's the gap. That's an important gap. If you're competing against Clemson and you're Florida, and you're Dan Mullen, that's a lot of game planning and a lot of development you're going to have to do to close that gap. Florida State, like we said, 13. Miami right now at number eight. Miami, however, has a very heavy three-star class, um, and they, you know they're they're they do have a five-star, but they're in kind of a weird spot. So takeaway points: Florida and Michigan are the only top ten schools right now not to have a single five-star. And on average, at Mississippi State, Dan Mullen averaged one to two top one hundred players per year. He's on the same pace at Florida. Is that good, bad, or indifferent? I don't know. Tyler, what are your reactions to, to these numbers? I knew we threw a lot out there, but kind of what's your snap reaction to that thought? Are, are you feeling good about where recruiting's going? You like the trend? You like where things are at? Uh, yeah, I, I think if you look at last year, we, you said you were, we were 34th, and now we're ninth. I mean, that that is a huge, huge jump. And uh, one of the biggest knocks like you, that you always say is Dan Mullen was with recruiting, and it's and I've always kind of been like, let's just sit back and look. He was at Mississippi State. He recruited a little bit better than Mississippi State ever had. Uh, now he's at Florida. So it's kind of hard to recruit with the likes of like Urban Meyer, who was always like top three. So I'm not necessarily looking for Mullen to be top three because I think Mullen is a better, as you said, developer. He's a better game day coach. So for me, I'm looking for top 10 classes. I would prefer top seven classes but once you get like the difference between last year's ninth class and sixth class was like one player or one player having a bump so i think the direction we're going is isn't a good direction uh we're filling we're filling big needs um losing chris Steele hurt so we definitely need to fill the cb spot but uh as far as clemson uh i think they're the big shiny 
um, gem that everybody wants to go to Clemson. They're the only team that's been able to take Bama down and, and uh, Dabo Sweeney has it going on. So everybody seems to like Dabo. So uh, they're going to be tough. Yeah, I want to jump in here. I think there's a couple of things that we have going for us this year and, and going throughout the year will certainly play a factor into strengthening this recruiting class. Looking on paper, yes, Florida is certainly much better than they were uh, at this time last year. I think another year where we have 9, 10, 11 wins during the season is certainly going to to add some additional win to our sales from a recruiting standpoint. As the fact of the matter is, we trust Mullen, or at least I trust Mullen, that he's going to be able to figure this out. He was able to figure out how to win and how to play effectively with Franks, with some of the other kind of misfit pieces that the University of Florida offense had, as well as the defense. And so I think he's going to start putting some of that to um, recruiting, because he sees the same things that we see from a recruiting standpoint. I don't think he is satisfied with ninth. I don't think he's even satisfied with top six or seven. He certainly wants to get to that one, two, or three spot. I think he's testing different theories and different ways to get there. They've certainly abandoned and scrapped the California experiment, and I think that was a terrible experiment. And, and for those that actually follow recruiting pretty closely would certainly agree. He's making some different hires from a staffing perspective. They're certainly pouring more money into our facilities, our training grounds, our locker room, all of that type of thing. But I think one other important piece of this is if Florida State has the year that they had last year, again, this year, you're all of a sudden going to create a vacuum um, in the state of Florida from if you want to stay in state, who should you be going with? Miami's a little bit in shambles with the rug getting pulled out from under them with Mark Rick leaving earlier. If Willie Taggart continues to be the coach that I think he's going to be and that I think a lot of people think he's going to be and the fact that he's not going to be good, you're now going to have a shift back to, to a lot of those 50-50 guys going the Florida way versus when we had Jimbo versus McElwain. There are a lot of players that are going Florida State over Florida. What are your thoughts there, James? Yeah, I think I think the the simple add to to where we're at is going to be the narrative I'm going to keep checking in on. So the next time we talk about this in the podcast will be around midseason, and what I'll look for is are we getting more top end guys? Are we getting more top 100 guys? Uh, you know, I think Manny Fernandez at Miami. If you talk to a Miami fan, they're excited about him. They actually think he's maybe taking the program to a different level than Rich could have. He's their guy. Now that that may crash, like you mentioned, JT, with wins and losses this season. But right now on the recruiting trail, he's doing a pretty admirable job. Florida State is going down. I mean, Taggart's not a good coach. It's obvious. We've seen it on a film. We talked about it last year. They're only going down until they fire him, which is great for Florida. And this is the narrative I think you have to take. You have to win recruiting in the state of Florida. You have to win it. And right now we're at best just kind of average in our own state. Uh, I do think what you said, JT, is maybe the most crucial thing that's going on. We haven't seen this yet. We talked about it a lot last year. We're seeing it now. Dan Mullen is hiring support staff. And that support staff seems almost exclusively right now geared towards recruiting. And that to me is a very, very good sign. Because if you're going to talk about the weakness that Florida has right now, in my opinion, it's recruiting. And what does a good coach do? He addresses that weakness by creating a system to pull players in. That system starts with getting support staff. Florida, as we've covered before, is woefully underserved with support staff compared to other schools, compared to schools we're competing with. It's been something that Mullins wanted, something that, that the Florida administrators have had to get their heads around. It's good to see us going in that direction. I hope we continue to go in that direction. I think that will make a big, big difference 
on the recruiting trail. Uh, if you're looking for what's the benchmark for success, I think this year, we talk about this every year, we need to finish tier two or tier three in recruiting. Right now we're in tier four, which is where we finished last year before losing some players, which would have slid us down into tier five or six. We really need to be in that tier two or tier three slot, which year to year could be between slots, you know, three to eight or three to seven, but it depends. And we'll kind of look at that top 100 number as we go through it. But so far, as Tyler said, as you said, JT, this is a really, really good uptick from last year. So if you kind of have been hearing lots of bad things about the program, all these guys leaving, it kind of feels like Florida's in a weird spot right now. The data says differently. The 2020 class says differently. That's a good thing. You should feel very, very good about that. Uh, so we're still in the early stages of building this bridge and the bridge is looking um, you know, mighty sound at this point in time. Is it going to be a bridge that takes you to a national championship? That can still be questioned. Uh, however, we can have that upside we're all looking for. All right, guys, let's look at SEC media days. No new coaches in the SEC this year. That is incredible. Since we've been doing the podcast, that has not happened. Some years you get two or three new coaches. So for the first time, for as long as anyone can remember, there's complete continuity. And not surprisingly, it led to a rather professional and tame SEC media days. A lot of people were hoping for Florida-Georgia talk. Florida's really been prodding at Georgia consistently. If you read the Georgia boards, all they're writing about this week is how Florida takes all these shots at Georgia and Florida's classless and they make all these excuses. But here at Georgia, the Kirby smart way is never to engage Florida. Georgia's worried about winning national titles and Florida's worried about Georgia. That's a big narrative I think everybody was hoping would happen. But I think wisely so. Mullen either you know made sure the players didn't talk about it. He himself didn't talk about it. There was really not a lot of Georgia talk from Florida. The one thing that did come up that is very interesting, of course, is the Florida-Georgia game itself. Should this game be moved from Jacksonville? This topic's come up a long time. If you've been a longtime Gator fan, it's come up many, many times during your lifetime. There's reason to believe this time there's political motivations, coaching motivations for the game to be moved. JT, what are your thoughts on this? Should the game be moved? Would you like this to be a home-and-home home series, or do you want to keep it in Jacksonville? Yeah, so growing up in Jacksonville, I've been to 15 of the last 18 Florida Georges. Certainly a huge – it's one of my favorite weekends of the year. You're, you, there's something special in the – third quarter to the fourth quarter when the game is close we have us on the one side doing we are the boys georgia's doing their four quarter chant the sun's going down the saint john's river it's really a special uh week weekend and it's a special game and i think mullen talked a little bit about that in sec media days talking about how there's really only three uh games that still have this where you're playing every year at a neutral site and, and it's interesting because this is certainly a controversy that's been going on for a long time. Spurrier back in the 90s famously said, uh, we have to take a bus, whereas they get on a plane to get there. And, and that certainly sparked a lot of the frustration with Georgia. They had no problem with Jacksonville back in the 70s and 80s when they were winning 15, 20 of these games in a row. But all of a sudden that tide starts shifting and the fact that um, different aspects are now coming into play. It certainly seems that Georgia is trying to uh, to get out of playing in Jacksonville. In the next couple of years, I believe the contract is actually up, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people brought this up. But the one disconnect that I have is how in the world is Kirby Smart getting up there and making a, a big crybaby speech about how the fact that he can't get recruits at the University of Georgia because he doesn't have a Florida home game. Like, I'm sorry, did I miss something? 
was Georgia a, a, a 20, 30, 40 ranked team? I mean, I'm pretty sure the last couple of years they've been second and third only behind Alabama and Clemson, and they've all been right there. I don't think he's experiencing this, this massive uh, drop-off from the fact that he doesn't have a chance to recruit uh, the Florida game at his own home stadium. So I would hate to see it changed. I guess if you were really going to press me on it and if there's no other way, because it certainly seems like this story has um, some more legs, especially with Mullen trying to put more emphasis on recruiting, if I have to do a compromise, I wouldn't be opposed to doing two years in Jacksonville, maybe one year in Georgia, and then one year in Florida, and then doing some form of rotation. So that way, every you can recruit on the fact that you still have this, this special game in Jacksonville, but there is going to be an opportunity to play them, uh, play Georgia, in Gainesville and then obviously go up to uh, to Athens to play a game as well. Yeah, uh, JT, I think you, you pretty much nailed it. Um, I think you might have a different approach of looking at it than maybe I do since you grew up in Jacksonville and you've been to so many of those games. Um, I'm kind of torn. I, I love the tradition of the, the Jacksonville game, but part of me wants to kind of feel what it's like to play Georgia and Athens or what it's like to have Georgia in our stadium. Like, what would it be like to say, Hey, I'm going up to Gainesville for the Georgia game in Gainesville in the swamp, like just to see them there. So I can see both sides of it, but, uh, um, as far as Kirby and, uh, I, I think he's just a whiny crybaby. period. Like he's not getting affected by recruiting, by not having the game in Athens and, not having the game and just like Florida's not getting uh, or losing recruits by not having the Georgia game there. Like the Georgia game's been in Jacksonville forever. I, I think there's, I think you could say that, yeah, you get to have recruits on those home games, but I, I don't think that one day of hosting Florida is going to make all these recruits jump on and say, come to Georgia or come to Florida. So that the kind of tie it all up. I, I think I'm torn. I'm 50, 50. I think it could go either way. I kind of liked your idea of maybe doing two games or doing like three different ways. Like first, first years in Jacksville, um, second years in Athens, third years in Florida. Um, if there was a possibility of doing that, I mean, I, I would be up for that. What do you think, James? Yeah, I like, I like what you said, JT. I think that's the way I would do it is I would do the two one and one. And I like that for a lot of reasons. Going to Jacksonville is incredible. It's a really fun tradition. It's a great game to play in. Uh, obviously, Gator fans have been to that game many, many times. Uh, I think that there is obviously appeal to playing Georgia in the stadium and playing at Athens, but I would never want to just play Georgia in a home and home forever. Uh, as much fun as it is to go to LSU, which is my favorite SEC road trip, that in Tennessee, it's really, really cool to have this game in Jacksonville. It's unique. It's special. The fans go for years and years and years. The Georgia fans love to hit up uh, you know, the northern part of Jacksonville and the islands in South Georgia and, and the Florida fans go to their places and you kind of book it on the calendar every single year. There's something special about that. And I think keeping that's important. I think to be fair, though, this is almost entirely Georgia driven for years and years and years. Now, there's been a lot of scuttle, but the Georgia is really wanted to get this game out of Jacksonville, at least for some time. They've tried to move it to Atlanta. They've tried to do other stuff. And, and rightfully so, Florida, why would Florida want to move it? It's in the state of Florida. If I'm a Georgia fan, I think I'm pushing much harder for this. It does feel not really great that it's in Florida every single year. Uh, it, it just seems a little odd. Um, it's not a big deal. It's still a neutral site, right? But at the same point in time, 
you know, I could see why they'd want to push for having a game at least in Atlanta every so often. Or, or I think the better solution is, again, what JT said. I think it's actually a great solution. I think I'd be the most excited about that. I'd love to go on a road trip to Athens. My cousin went there. I've been there before. It'd be really, really fun to get everything. It's not often you get to have your cake and eat it too. And I think from a recruiting standpoint, what's better than saying if you stay all four years, you know, you're guaranteed to wind up uh, getting to play at Georgia. That's a, that's a cool carrot at the end of the stick. So a lot of talk about that. I think it's really possible this could happen. So pay more attention as time goes on. Uh, I think there's enough motivations on on one side to make the other side make a concession. And we're going to see where that goes or what that looks like. All right, as for Dan Mullen at SEC Media Days, really not a single controversial thing that you could imagine he even said. He talked about transfers. He talked about qualification issues. He talked about Felipe Frank. He talked about where the program's at. These are things that have been well covered. There's really nothing new for us to merit mention there. So the Florida coverage at this point in time will take a little bit of a pause. And now I'll move to some other schools that had some interesting things that will, of course, affect Florida indirectly. And we'll start with with Gus Malzahn. JT, Gus is calling the plays this year. Does that matter for Auburn's win-loss total? So it's interesting. And and usually if a a coach is doing something like this and he's on as hot of a seat as Gus Malzahn is, it certainly seems like a little bit of a desperation heave at this point. Uh, They have one of the toughest schedules in in the entire country. Um, Certainly has to play Alabama, Texas A&M. They they start off the season, I think, playing Oregon as well. I think, yes, I think you're going to see the offense do a little bit better. Gus Malzahn, as an offensive coordinator, when he was playing, I believe he was calling the plays two or three seasons ago as well. And so it's only been recent since he gave that up. And, and I would argue the last couple of seasons has been where Auburn's offense has really taken a backseat. Uh, I'm kind of indifferent. Uh, I don't really know why they gave him that huge buyout to begin with. I, fe- I feel like he's been on the hot seat for almost two or three years now. And, and uh, I think... I, I, I think if it doesn't work out now that he's calling plays, then I mean, there's nothing else you can do. You got to let him go. You got to fire him. I think this is a last last ditch effort for Auburn. Um, so I'm I'm kind of indifferent. I don't I don't know necessarily think it matters. I'll give you. What a do you think? James? I'll give you, I'll give you a different take on this one. I think it I think it matters a lot. Actually, I think play calling is a skill and a gift. And we covered that on on this podcast at nauseum last year, right? Every podcast. What was one of the reasons why we won last year? Play calling. It was Dan Mullen getting us into an excellent play call and what we called basically stealing touchdowns, gadgeting your ways into plays, right? Undressing the defense with a play call that allows your college athlete to have a really simple play. That makes a huge difference. It's one of the primary reasons that I think we won as many games as we did last year. Gus Malzahn was gifted in this. He was very good at this. He had the large majority of his offense success when he was doing this. And I think like a lot of coaches, and I give Dan Mullen a lot of credit here, by the way, uh, they feel like, hey, I need to spend more time being a CEO. Every minute I'm spending practicing with the offense or coordinating plays or calling plays is time I could be spending with the whole team. Uh, it doesn't mean it's going to work. It's also a Hail Mary move, like you said, JT. Right? Gus Malzahn knows this is the absolute last year for him. If he does not get it done, he's out. He knows that. He feels that. I think even with the buyout, Auburn's going to do it. They're crazy. They're going to make that happen. And that's why he's doing it. But it also doesn't mean it's not going to be a significant improvement. Uh, I think if I pulled you and Tyler right now and said, would you want Dan Mullen to give up play calling? The answer would be an emphatic no. So I think it does matter when certain guys are doing it. Uh, however, 
for Gus, maybe it's too little too late. They've got a tough schedule this year. They've got a lot in front of them. Uh, obviously, he called it a mistake. You know, it was a mistake for me to give up play calling. I'm going to correct this mistake. So he certainly thinks it's a big deal. Auburn fans, I think, have no idea what to expect. That is the nature of having Gus as your coach. We'll see, though. But for what it's worth, if I'm an Auburn fan, I'm happy about this development. I think the data suggests that it was best when he was calling plays. And if you're going to go down with a ship, take your best shot. So I think Gus is doing that. All right, JT, you watched all 22 minutes of Coach Pruitt at Tennessee's long and very detailed SEC media introduction speech. What are your thoughts on Pruitt and Tennessee? You know, I know there's a lot of excitement last year with Pruitt, and he seemed sharp, and he seemed uh, well put together, and this is a new Tennessee. And, and while, yes, I think he was a lot better than the bumbling idiot that was uh, Butch Jones, I think there's going to be a lot of questions for Tennessee. Uh, he talked about a lot of the mistakes that he had. He talked about how he was trying to change too many things uh, at one time. He talked about trust issues uh, with his coaching staff, with his players, not really being able to trust them to succeed. And, and what's interesting, so for those of you that don't know me, I'm actually a sales manager down here. And one of those things when you're a manager, you try to what we call boil the ocean and you're trying to, to correct all these different things and you're trying to change all this uh, culture. And I think he's failed on on a lot of on a lot of that. I, I, it seems like reading between the lines of what he was saying, he's a little over his head. Um, I know Georgia fans and Florida State fans certainly weren't the largest fans of Jeremy Pruitt either, which is where he had came from. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in diving into each team in, in a little bit, but I am I'm a seller of Tennessee and the fact that Jeremy Pruitt is going to be their savior. Uh, I, I think he is a good recruiter. As far as head coach, uh, I'm not seeing it yet. I mean, maybe it's just because it's Tennessee and like lately we've just absolutely owned them. But uh, I don't think they really got that much better last year. They kind of, you never really knew what to expect when they showed up. Like, so I'm with JT, I would sell for it. I didn't get to watch his video or any, all the 22 minutes of it. So I can't comment on that, but I didn't think it was a great hire last year. I don't know if it's going to get any better this year, but that could be my orange and blue goggles. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I kind of think that the Pruitt has a chance here to prove himself. There's a, there's some I don't want to say excitement amongst the Tennessee fan base because I think their their fans have gotten very excited at any possible thing to get excited at, and they're so burned right now that I think they're finally in the right place which is malaise, which is where you should be. It's where I was as a Gator fan. It's where I advocate all fans go when there's no reason to be hopeful until somebody proves it to you. (laughs) And so I think they're finally there. However, I actually think Pruitt is good. I think, if anything, he's underrated. I think he came into this SEC media days and he purposely was boring. Uh, I think he's trying to get this program to be organized and less chaotic we don't know yet. I think that's the bottom line, right? No one has really any idea what's going to happen. He has a total rebuild project there. But by all by all accounts, Tennessee seems to be trending up, I think. I think some people have them as like sort of a, a dark horse, you know, team that could win more games than Vegas thinks they could buy a few games this year. Uh, but we're going to find out, I think, every year that goes by, like we talk about on this podcast, you learn more. I'm very confident within three-year period, I can evaluate a coach and give you a pretty good idea of whether you should fire him 
And if you keep him, what his ceiling will be? I think there's a lot of data on that. So this will be an interesting year for him. He's not a guy that gets you excited. I think all three of us are saying that, right? Like no one's like, man, Pruitt, I'm amped. His own team, he's just sort of a guy, but maybe he's a guy that Tennessee needs right now to build a bridge to the next guy. And maybe he'll get them to consistent eight or nine win seasons, which would be heroic given what Tennessee's not accomplished in the past, you know, 15 years. But either way, JT, any final thoughts on Pruitt? Like if you're a Tennessee fan, are you thinking like get rid of this guy right now? Or are you like wait and see mode? Like what do you think, you know, you just imagine you're a Tennessee fan. What do you think your feeling is going into the season with him? If I were a Tennessee fan and I have Pruitt as my coach, I, I, I think it's I think it's Muschamp all over again. I think it's a defensive coordinator who's over his head as a head coach. Somebody who, yes, he may end up even winning seven or eight games this year, depending on how the schedule shakes up and depending how it is. But as far as long-term coach, is he a dark horse to compete with Florida or Georgia? No. We beat him by 25 points last year or so. Um, and that was early on in the season when Florida really hadn't discovered themselves. Uh, they didn't really do anything to compete with any other of the, the teams. I, I believe they were a sub-500 uh, record last year. Uh, I, I think they'll make a bowl game, but as far as taking them to that next level, I, I don't see it, and I don't think Pruitt will be the answer. And It's not like he's been burning up the recruiting trail either. So uh, I think Tennessee has not found the answer in Jeremy Pruitt. Maybe a little early to say that, but uh, I think history will prove this correct. Let me just read you the records of Tennessee since since Phil Fulmer departed. 2009, Lane Kiffin, 7 and 6, Derek Dooley, 6 and 7, 5 and 7, 5 and 7, Butch Jones, 5 and 7, 7 and 6, 9 and 4. Tennessee fans are excited. We're 9 and 4. Oh my goodness, it's been a decade. Here we come. 9 and 4 again. A little frustrated that Tennessee team was better than that. They underachieved and then 4 and 8. Ugh right? Gut punch. Then Jeremy Pruitt goes 5-7 and seven last year. He wins two games in the SEC after they go 0-8 in 2017. When you look at the numbers on Tennessee, it's amazing what a powerhouse they once were and how just dumpster fire atrocious they've been for such a long time. And obviously, that's the job Jeremy Pruitt has in front of him. We'll see what happens. He's recruiting pretty well right now. He seems to be building a team. I think the Will Muschamp narrative is a really good one. Uh, a less exciting, like a very boring Will Muschamp JT, but I think that's very possibly where he trends. We don't know yet. That may not be such a bad thing for Tennessee. Uh, it's possible that Will Muschamp gateways you to somebody else. I mean, I think if you look at these records, Will Muschamp fits right in. And if anything, he's definitely better than Derek Dooley, Butch Jones. Lane Kiffin is still a huge question mark as to where he is as a college football coach. But time will tell. We'll find out. I think the bottom line is he's not exciting. He's not a high ceiling guy. Certainly, I don't look like he's going to blow it out of the water. I don't know what Tennessee's looking for right now. To me, and I'm, let, me put a, let me put this in bed with this one. I love Mike Leach. I think Mike Leach is an amazing media guy. I think he runs an awesome air raid system. I don't think he's a complete coach. There's, he's got holes in his game, but I mean, come on. The guy wins 10 games almost every year at Washington State. You blew hiring Mike Leach. You, you blew it. You literally blew hiring a guy that would have been a massive splash hire that has proven to be able to compete with anybody. And you get Jeremy Pruitt? That's the question I keep coming back to. That just seems insane to me. I, I really can't believe they even did that. But that is where Tennessee is. All right, another school that seems to have magically waltzed their way back into the, the forefront of college football is LSU. I said in this very podcast when Ed Orgeron went there that you could forget about it. LSU is dead. Stick a fork in them. And all they did last year was overachieve, overachieve, overachieve. Uh, if you happen to watch the video of Ed Orgeron chasing after his little cousin or nephew and falling face first in the beach this past couple of weeks, right? He's a likable guy. Like the guy's just like this big, funny, you know, weird talking dude. 
And of course, at SEC Media Days, you kind of hope for him to carry the show nowadays. There's no Steve Spurrier. There's not a lot of characters. There's a lot of like Nick Sabanites, like say nothing to the media, be really boring. So you want Ed to be entertaining. He wasn't super entertaining. We got one or two quotes for you. However, there was a big narrative, JT, about designing the entire offense around Joe Burrow. If you watched LSU play at all last year, which any Gator fan, of course, did, that offense was just absolutely horrifically bad. They might as well have been middle schoolers out there running three or four plays every single game. It was a joke. They had some success with it, but man, was it ugly. So now they're really excited. Apparently, they've got you know all these brand new bikes to ride around, right? Their offense is going to be so flashy, bells and whistles, everything you need. All this around Joe Burrow, who's now their hero. Joe Burrow wears Roadrunner socks. It's SEC media today to display how much he's going to run. JT, what are you making all this? What do you feel about this? Well, for those who actually watched the Joe Burrow interview, he is one um, arrogant quarterback. I think he thinks he is the best gift to God's green earth and certainly going to take LSU to newfound uh, heights. Uh, that being said, he is pretty good. And, and, and I do agree with you, James. It does feel like they put all the chips into this Joe Burrow stock and that, hey, this is the year they want to go all on. Out. They have a number of defensive guys coming back. They have a number of offensive guys coming back. Ed Ogeron and their team have done a great job recruiting. They brought in a new offensive coordinator. They've redesigned this entire offense to do more of an RPO style, um, spreading people out, getting the ball to their playmakers. And, and oh, by the way, they have maybe one of the, according to Ed Ogeron, the best secondary that he's ever seen. So uh, if this is the, like, if LSU were to ever take that next step, uh, it would have to be this year, you think, based on all of the all of the things they are doing on right now, and really just emphasizing Joe Burrow and the defense and, and some of these other people they have. I look at LSU, and if you look at like the stats over last year uh, between us and LSU, like we were kind of like identical teams. Like we both finished uh, in the top ten. Um, we both averaged close points per game. Um, I think we did better than they did. But LSU was loaded with talent. And I kind of agree with what you said, JT. Like, this is their year. Like, they have a lot of players coming back. If you look at, like, their uh, first team, SEC, all SEC teams, and, the, I mean, LSU's on there a lot with all, those, all three of those, first, second, and third. I think what LSU did was surrounded coach O and paid his offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator, like lots of money and gave them great coordinators to help coach O succeed. Cause I don't think he could do it by himself. You know what I mean? He's not like a Nick Saban. He's not an urban Meyer. I'm not quite sure how they're going to do this year, but it, it definitely will be interesting. And implementing a new offense uh, definitely will have some hiccups in the beginning. Like, I don't know if they wiped the whole offense and just redid it or if they're just adding some uh, a few wrinkles in here or there. What do you think, James? What I think is this. I think that Orgeron is at SEC Media Days and his offensive coordinator is telling a story about last year and how Ed's in the sideline. Ed is saying, hey, why aren't we running more five wide? Why are we running more empty sets? He says, coach, we don't even have five five wide receivers to put out there. Which is just indicative of what you said, Tyler, and why I love it so much. Like this is a grand experiment at LSU. It's it's a masterful stroke of let's segment this as far as you can segment it. Let's get a figurehead head coach who recruits really well because players love him 
and let's have him do absolutely nothing when it comes to X's and O's. Literally nothing. That's what he does. He does nothing. Knows nothing. He might as well be Bobby Bowden towards the end of his career when he couldn't name a single one of his players. And he'd run around saying, well, I think number 87 out there had a good game. Orgeron's sort of like that, just younger, uh, but a likable guy. And I think that he knows as likable head coach of the team, he's like a fan. Hey, we need to run a more sexy offense. So what are you going to get? You're going to get a more sexy offense. As to whether or not that's true, I have no idea. I could, I could rattle off for the next hour all these teams that have said they've revamped their whole offense and things are going to be amazing, including here at Florida, which we heard year after year after year. I'll believe it, of course, when I see it. But the difference with LSU is they do have very, very high-priced and sexy names at those coordinator positions. So we'll see. At any rate, I'm happy if I'm an LSU fan that they're going to try to do something much different than what they did last year. But until I see it proven on the field... I don't know what to make of it. I still just feel like you can't consistently win with that order on. You can't. The leader of your team is your head coach in college football. And while segmenting is really important, I'm a big believer in outsourcing and segmenting and really doing as little as possible outside the scope of what you're an expert in. But what is Ed Ordron an expert in? Recruiting? That's not exactly like a a huge competitive advantage. I mean, he's I don't get it. I don't really know. It seems weird to me. It seems like that's a low ceiling situation. So I just kind of feel like LSU is going to hang around until Ed Orgeron's gone. But as you both said, this is a huge year for Ed Orgeron and LSU. I think they know it. They kind of got everything they basically want. They feel amazing about their defense. They feel like they're so much better than last year. And uh, they're going to have to find out if they can do it. They got a tough schedule. So we'll see where we predict them to finish. All right. Lastly, Nick Saban, yet again, foiled by Clemson, gets to the microphone and really has, I think, for Nick Saban, a very poor showing. Talks a lot about how his coaches were more focused on going to their next jobs and their players were more focused on going to the NFL and blah, 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 blah. Not a single time does he say, I messed this up. I should have done better. I should have gotten our guys more motivated. I should have figured this out. And that's followed up by his players saying, you know, in reality, Clemson's really not a better team. They're not better. They're not better than us. I have a hard time understanding how this is what some programs say. I had a hard time when Florida was saying that. I didn't like it last year when our guys are out there saying, yeah, Georgia's not better than us. You know, look, if somebody beats you, just say they were better than you. Even if you don't believe it, just get out there and say, you know what? They're better than us. And if somebody crushes you 42 to 14 or they, they, they just beat the brakes off of you, yeah, that team smoked me. That team's way better than me. I'm not as good as that team on my best day. I'm not as good as that team in any day. I lost to them and this year I want to beat them. Whatever happened to that? So instead we get Bama just on their high horse about how we control everything. It's our fault. Clemson had nothing to do with it, which is a weird tactic when the odds are very good. You're going to face Clemson again. Disrespecting your main rival that's beating you seems odd. What do you guys make of this? Am I making too much of this? Does this not matter? Or are you reading into a, maybe a sore loser here? I'll start this off. I, I, I think Bama and their players are probably a different breed. They're, they're so used to winning all the time that maybe just maybe obviously Clemson was a better team that day. Everybody can say that. I don't think when they say that Clemson's not better than them, I don't think they mean that like Clemson wasn't better that day. I think they just mean like overall, like we're just as good as Clemson. We should have won that game. Um, Maybe they could have added, but we didn't, we didn't play our best game. Um, Maybe it's just a difference of, I mean, Alabama's been in what the the playoff every single year. They have like Saban has six titles. Like maybe it's just that, almost like an arrogance per se. 
Um, I don't think you're reading too much into it, but I, I don't know. I'm, I, I kind of look at that, those comments and those statements by, like you said, the leader of the program. Nick Saban's arrogant. He's cocky. I, I think he uh, passes that down onto his players. So, like, if the head coach is coming off like that, I think you're going to kind of see some of the players come off like that. Yeah, I'm I 100% going to agree with you there. I we I think everybody knows that Nick Saban is cocky, and I think you've also seen that in some of the offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators he's hired through the years, whether it's Lane Kiffin um, and Steve Sarkeesian, which is actually, I think, the area that the SEC media really should ask more questions about. I mean, here's a guy who was washed up, did a terrible job in USC, pretty much took them to a level below where they had been over the last few years. And then on top of that, to have a pretty poor performance in the NFL working with Matt Ryan, who had very, very high flying offense for the Falcons. Steve Sarkeesian comes in and they did not look like the same offense, even though they had the exact same personnel. I think my questions with Alabama, certainly piggybacking off of the Nick Saban arrogance is the fact that he's been very arrogant with some of the coordinator choices. And this year choosing Steve Sarkeesian, I would not be shocked at all if Alabama's offense takes a step back due to some of this arrogance and, and due to Steve Sarkeesian because he's not really proven anywhere um, that he can be a good offensive coordinator and I would put him in the bucket more along the lines of Jim McElwain and Nussmeyer who oh by the way they also were uh, offensive coordinators at the University of Alabama when that Alabama offense was not where it should have been I'm I'm I'm, I'd be a little bit concerned if I was an Alabama fan, not only with this with this mindset of arrogance, but also with, with some of the new coaching changes that they have going on within their team. And that's almost what this feels like to me. And it's weird to say this about Nick Saban, but when the regime is changing, at least for the moment, and it may not change. Look, let's let's not spoiler alert what's happening with Alabama, but there's a lot of smart people that think this is Alabama's best team ever. It just so happens that Clemson has their best team ever, which is great for college football because if either one of these teams existed without the other one, why even watch college football this year? Like That's how significantly better these two teams are. But thankfully, they're there for each other. So if these teams don't get hurt, they're going to be there. But it feels a little bit like Nick Saban may be thinking, I'm wounded here. I'm a boxer that's just gotten beat. I'm going to dig deep and say that my opponent's not better than me. I'm going to beat him. I made some mistakes in my own training and my own camp. But deep down inside, there's a little kernel of doubt that maybe, just maybe, they're actually better than you on most days. And so how do you cover for that? You take it all on yourself. You don't give them any credit. And you just say, yeah, you know, it's, it's us. We'll fix it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think Nick Saban truly believes that, but it's interesting. I was surprised that he was still sort of so salty about it. Yeah, that hurts. Yeah, that sucks. Yes, you won't forget that. But you've won so many games. You've been such a, a champion. Just give that team their due. He didn't. We'll see how it goes this season. I'm looking forward to that game already if it does occur. All right. Speaking of delusions. What are, we... what are your thoughts? Go hey, for it. Hey, James, what are your thoughts on Steve Sarkeesian as an offensive coordinator for Alabama? I hope he doesn't drink his way out of a job pretty quickly. I think that's crazy, honestly. I don't understand how Steve Sarkeesian is still employed. I mean, he's has he done anything? Has he ever been good? I'll put that to you. Has he ever been provably good? Go ahead, respond. I, that's exactly what I've been saying. I think that's the biggest head-scratcher, and I think that's just another sign of that arrogance playing it out. 
I don't get it. I mean, I again, I don't, I don't know. I think Nick Saban's been through so many coaches and coordinators that maybe Sarkeesian's the guy who feels like will do whatever he says. I just, I don't, I don't know. He won with Jim McElwain. Let's not forget that. So Saban can obviously win with anybody, but Sarkeesian seems just like a disaster to me. Uh, I, I don't understand some of the stuff Bama does when it comes to their office of coordinators. I think oftentimes they have a guy that's kind of like not so great. And hey, they ran Lane Kiffin off in the midst of a prolific season because he was such a jerk that Nick Saban couldn't tolerate him for two more weeks. Seems odd. Seems like if he made it that far, just tolerate him. But again, Saban, Saban, he's one of the best ever, right? If not the best ever. So I guess he can do what he wants. But we shall see. It just feels to me like the momentum meter is fully pegged on Clemson. Like fully pegged, like as far as it can go over there in Alabama in this weird spot is almost like not forgotten about, but definitely the little brother right now. Definitely the second fiddle. All right, so delusional fan bases. Safe to say that a lot of people and a lot of fans all over the country are delusional, but some players, some fans think that their school is more delusional than others. Michael P. Ryan said that Florida fans are bipolar, basically suggesting that you never really know how they're going to feel. When things are good, they love you. When things are bad, it's fire the coach, fire the equipment manager, fire the kicker, fire whoever, just make a change. Are Florida fans more delusional than other fans? Is P. Ryan right? Are Florida fans bipolar? What are your thoughts on this? I think I watched all the SEC Media Day stuff on um, on the Gators. Uh, after watching P. Ryan, I, I really, really liked him. Um, after watching all his stuff, he has this humble confidence per se um i think he has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder but he will do whatever he has to do for his team to win and i think when the bipolarness thing he was asked the question and it is basically per quote man fans honestly florida probably has the most bipolar fans ever when we're winning games everybody's happy but when we're losing games nobody's happy everybody gets bashed from the coaches to the equipment guys to the kickers it could be anybody on the team getting bashed i i think that happens at every team and i think the reason why he says that is cuz he plays for florida so if he played for bama or clemson or any of those teams i, I think that happens across college football especially at the premier programs so I, I kind of take it as just like regular talk. It doesn't make me hate P. Ryan because he says that. Because, I mean, let's be honest. It's somewhat true. I mean, with social media and Twitter and all that stuff. I mean, one guy makes a drop and that whole player's Twitter gets blown up calling him he's a loser. I, I don't agree with that at all. But uh, I think it just happens across college football. Yeah, I would agree with you in some senses. that It certainly happens across uh, college football. I will also agree with P. Ryan. I do think Florida fans are probably more bipolar and more delusional than most. I, for one, certainly am a delusional Florida fan, and and anyone who has been able to stick through uh, some of the 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 past five to ten years with the University of Florida, with McElwain and Muschamp and debilitating loss after debilitating loss, you have to almost start to separate yourself from reality in order to prop up your team. So I, I certainly think Florida is a delusional team. If, do I think they are the most delusional team? No, I think there's probably three or four other teams in the SEC uh, that I would argue are, are probably more delusional than even Florida is. Rank those, you, rank those teams, JT. I want to hear them. Give me one, two, three, four. You want, you want me? All right. So I do think Florida is probably fourth. Love Florida. We are delusional fans. You have to be uh, coming from where we are. Uh, the third most, I would say, is Texas A&M. 
um, the audacity to think that you are the best program in the state of Texas, the audacity to think that you guys are on the level of where Alabama and some of these other storied programs are. Yes, I understand that Bear Bryant played at Texas A&M and that they are a big-time school and they have boosters, but they are the second fiddle in their state. Um, and, and then, obviously, they threw a ton of money at Jimbo Fisher. I do think they are they are moving in the right direction, but I do think their fans are certainly on that list of delusional. Uh, I would say number two and number one are, are neck and neck, but I would say number two is probably Tennessee fans. Uh, again, the fact that they ran Philip Fulmer out, out of town, they thought that they could take this to the another level, when in reality, you're at the University of Tennessee, there is no other level for you. And in fact, every coach has gotten progressively worse, it seems like, over the course of the last uh, decade or so for them. And the fact that they still view themselves as equals to Florida and Georgia is pretty ridiculous. Um, and then I would have to say the most delusional fan is LSU. LSU, if you ask them who their rival is, they would say Alabama. They would say they are on par with Alabama or like, or like, hey, we lost this game, but in reality, we were the better team or we should have been able to win this game. They compare themselves to Alabama when in reality, they haven't been anywhere close to Alabama. And the only national championship you won was, oh, by the way, with the Alabama coach right now, Nick Saban, back in 2006. Your program is nowhere near Alabama. You're probably a lot closer to Auburn. Um, but uh, LSU fans and Tennessee fans, in my opinion, are, are going to rank at the top. But Florida, I, I certainly would put them in the top tier as well. I would agree with Tennessee. I would uh, agree. I think we're top five. I would throw Georgia in there. I'm sorry to think that you, you, they just come across so arrogant and cocky and they haven't won in what, 40 years, 30 years, 30 something years. They haven't won a national title. So like, if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, we had, you say the, the goal is to hire a coach to win a national championship. And Georgia's hired how many coaches and nobody has a national championship. That that doesn't mean I don't think they have the ability to get there, but they talk like they're Alabama, but they haven't won like Alabama. They recruit like Alabama, but still, but this is Kirby's fourth year and they still don't have a title and they've been recruiting lights out. So I would throw Georgia in there as, as one of those teams. Um, Tennessee, for me, I don't know. Like, maybe if you asked me that same question three or four years ago, I would definitely say Tennessee. But I feel like they have just gotten their hearts ripped out so many years that maybe James is right that they're in that, like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing until actually somebody does something. LSU, I wouldn't compare them with Alabama. I think they've been a premier program in the West. I mean, I, I typically it's typically Alabama, LSU, and Auburn are the typical three West teams going at it. Um, and ever since Nick Saban got to Alabama, then it's just, I mean, right now college football is Clemson, Alabama, and then everybody else. That's kind of how I look at it. So, but to top it off, I think everyone's delusional. They're all delusional in their own way. I have, thought, I have thoughts on this. In the SEC, the most delusional fan base is, is Tennessee without a doubt, if we're going historically. I mean, those fans, that's why I love them. If you've never been to a game in Knoxville, I implore you, I beg you to go. And please go when they're even remotely okay. Because you have never seen a more awesomely rabid, intense fan base that is just absolute 
full of delusions of grandeur. And I, and I love it. I love their fans for that. I think in the SEC, Florida actually ranks pretty far down this list. I think that what P. Ryan shouldn't be saying is bipolar or delusional. But what he should be saying is like, we are snobby, elitist, have high expectations. And rightfully so. I think the resources that this program has, the state that it's in, the position within the state that it employs, the conference that it plays in, what it's achieved in that conference, it has every right to think that it should be in that category. Tennessee does not. And that to me is delusion. Like it's not delusional for a Florida fan to think that we should be competing for a national title every four to five years. It's absolute madness for a Tennessee fan to say the same thing. But if they were here right now on this show, they would. That to me is is delusional. I think Georgia fans have lived in delusion for a long time for a variety of reasons. And I think right now, if they don't win a national title, I think they might all just spontaneously combust because they've been delusional for 30 years and they want it so bad, they need it so bad, and they haven't gotten there yet. That's an interesting one to follow. But but to me, true delusion is simple to recognize, gentlemen. And there is one school that is far, far beyond any other school when it comes to delusion. And that school is the University of Central Florida. That, my friends, is true delusion. Amen. I mean, I have never seen a fan base that has reached the level of just analytical, throw out the window anything that you might want to use to have a proof than UCF fans. Like, honestly, I hate them. I hate their school. I hate their logo. I almost hate their city now. I'm so sick of hearing them run their mouth. It's absurd. Like, and I don't normally care. Like, for a while, I was like, oh, UCF, you're cute. You're good. Actually, I'm rooting for you. You're the underdog. You're Cinderella. But th- those fans are beside themselves to think that they actually think they could compete with Alabama, with Clemson, with others, not just one time, but regularly. Like they are living on another planet. And to me, if UCF becomes the school you look at, they make Notre Dame, who's another exceptionally delusional school, look like they're grounded, right? But UCF has taken the cake on this so far that for P. Ryan to say we're the most bipolar, maybe we're bipolar, maybe we're high and low. Well, I'm sorry, P. Ryan, if you were a Florida fan for the past 10 years and you're not bipolar, I think something's probably wrong with you. Because what you really mean is that we've endured all kinds of pain. And JT, to your point, hey, we're still here. Florida State may have no fans left. They've done nothing but win consistently for 30 years. And guess what? They might not have a stadium to play in after this year. We've endured eight years of just garbage and we're still here. We still go to the spring game. We still post on your Twitter page. So I'm not mad at P. Ryan, but I think in general, enjoy that Florida fans are supportive on either side of the bipolarness. But yeah, UCF, right? Is UCF not the benchmark? Is there anyone more delusional than them? I mean, that's resonating with you guys, right? Like these guys are out of control. You're absolutely right. UCF has gotten way out of control uh, from the fact that they won't play uh, Florida unless they do a home-and-home, the fact that they've erected themselves national champions, um, all the different things. Yes, I would love to have seen a playoff where UCF would have been able to compete and it could have been decided, but the fact that I'm in a bowl game cheering for LSU over UCF is certainly a, just speaks to where, where they are as a program and how much they have annoyed the majority of college football fans. And on our text thread, the LSU-UCF game was the most texted, talked about thread, even more so than the national title game. Like We were more passionately invested in that game and the outcome of it than a lot of other ones. And it shows you a lot about how, in the state of Florida, I think most of us feel about UCF. And I understand the frustration of them not getting a chance to play. I've supported that side of things. But that also shouldn't mean that you think that you can beat Alabama. I mean, come on. I, I totally agree, James. Um, 
I've been saying it for the last year about UCF. Like I even have some UCF friends and some of the stuff they say, I'm like, I think you're right. It's like talking to a Tennessee fan, but they're on like cocaine. Like they just think they, they think they can compete in the SEC. I'm like, I, even against the LSU game, what LSU had like a wide receiver playing cornerback. Like it, it just, there's no, there's no way UCF could compete in the SEC and, and the fact that they want to go head to head with us one for one, it just makes no sense. Why would we, why would we even do that? Why do we have to do that? We don't have to do that because we're in a premier league and they're not. Yeah. And, and to finish this thought off and, and again, there's plenty of UCF students I know that are, that are great. Honestly, the people are great, but since we're talking in generalities, I can say that I hate UCF because it's a generality. It's fine. It's sports. So we're talking about what I'm really saying is I hate the, the delusions that they're under, but here's a fun fact for you that I know was some inside information that's pretty solid. There's actual bad blood right now between the UCF Athletic Department and the University of Florida Athletic Department. Like, they have not put that negotiation about playing each other aside. There's actual, real beef. That's how delusional UCF is. Is not only do they walk away from that negotiation table with an incredibly rare chance to try to schedule a deal with Florida where you can get to play them again. Now, we've done this before. But you think you're good. You think you're going to be good. Schedule that game. It's in your best interest, right? Go beat Florida at Florida. Hey, what's better than that? Basically nothing. They walk away from the table and say that we are not being equitable to them. Unreal. That's an incredible like, posturing situation by them. And I think they're going to pay for it because I think Scott Frost was incredible. I think they're going to be, you know, begin to have a slow decline back to where they could be. I think they'll still be good, but not the heights they were at. So, you know, cash and wire out. They didn't do it. I guess they can always talk about for years and years and years how they would have won, should have won, could have won, didn't get their chance. Uh, so be it. They'll become like Tennessee fans. I guess those two can be friends. All right. Let's transition to our last topic of the day. We're going to start this off with, with sports gambling and then move into actually us picking all of the SEC where we're going to finish and including the Heisman Trophy winners. So before we get into that, sports gambling has been legalized in a large majority of states. Uh, it's it's going to probably be legalized in almost every state in the next couple of years with the exception of a few. There's a worry that now that it's legal as opposed to illegal, that college athletes will point shave more or be pulled into schemes to point shave more or begin to do things to profit off this. Do either of you, and we'll start with you, JT, have any kind of concern that college athletes will be more incentivized to get with a bookie or point shave than they were before when it was illegal? I mean, while it may have been illegal recently, it's still certainly possible. If you, if you wanted to be able to gamble on sports, there are different ways that you'd be able to do that type of thing. I don't think it incentivizes players uh, as much. Uh, you, when you hear about sport, uh, point shaving and all that, you have pictures of the mob and the mafia and there's all these back alley deals and Pete Rose and some of those other sports gambling um, things. I, I don't anticipate that. Maybe there'll be a pocket somewhere where there's a one school that ends up doing that over the course of the next 25 years, but I, I can't imagine this being a widespread problem. Yeah, I agree with what JT said. Um, I, it, even before it was legal, it was all you, there was always ways to gamble. Um, I don't think legalizing it changes the the aspects of like trying to get players to shave points or, or do anything like that and if it, it and if it does happen i mean I, I think there has to you have to drop the hammer like if it somebody does get somebody has to get the hammer dropped on them and and uh i i mean i i 
it's like a free market, right? Like you're always like pro free market. So I, I think it's good for the sport in a sense that maybe it'll get more people to watch different games um, to engage in games that maybe they wouldn't otherwise engage in just because they have monetary value on it in a sense. Yeah, interesting topic here. I spent some time in grad school actually researching quite a bit uh, sports gambling in this country, poker gambling. In the poker world, they obviously found a very crafty way to use the Commerce Act to sort of ban online poker from being played. And it really did crumble what was a budding industry. Tyler, you can recall, we, we kind of grew up in college playing these sort of poker nights where you'd play all sorts of different poker games, right? A million different games. And, and then all of a sudden it became mm-hmm. the only, you only played Hold'em. And now I don't know what the college poker scene looks like, but I can assure you not everyone's playing Hold'em because that fervor blew down. So it would be naive to say that it's not going to increase interest. It's much easier now. It's much more accessible as opposed to FanDuel being a site where you just go you know, bet on daily fantasy. They have a bookie program now. It's natural to think that all these fantasy ball players are going to not feel bad anymore about opening up an account. It's very simple. Okay, I'll try some dollars here. So that will open up avenues. But the, the high-level question of will college athletes themselves gamble on it? Pretty unlikely. I think obviously it's it's really difficult to do that step one and not get caught right. If you open up an account, your name's on there. You get over the friend's account. You got to go through this situation. But more importantly, if you're talking about point shaving, that almost always begins with uh, somebody that's in a black market anyway, right? Whether it's the mafia or it's a local guy in town who's kind of got his pulse on the underground sports betting market. That situation I think occurs all the time. Period. Uh, meaning that like it was always available 10, 20, or 30 years from now. That was something that was being done and people were trying to approach players to do. In football, it's extremely hard to do it. You'd have to get a quarterback or someone else like that. It's a big, big risk to take. I don't know that it increases it anymore. However, college athletes placing bets on other teams, which would definitely void their ability to be a college athlete, could be maybe some kind of problem. But again, if you're following what's in people's best interest, it's in the best interest of college athletes not to lose their eligibility. Most of them are going to wind up not doing that. The ones who will do that are going to be the ones who kind of feel like their career is over. So to me, and this is a different conversation for a different day, punishments need to be individualized. So let's say the three of us are coaching the Gators and we get a senior player who's benched and not playing anymore. He's on scholarship and he decides to go rogue and we don't know it. And he starts betting lots of money against our team or on other teams. How are we going to know that? How do we possibly figure that out? And then if he does that, our whole program goes down with him. That's a problem I have. You know, I think to me, that's an individual responsibility issue. If that guy does that, he should be punished. But I think right now, if I am a team, I'm probably slightly concerned that one guy could bring us all down because the stigma that does exist with sports gambling, uh, you know, Pete Rose is still not in the Hall of Fame because of it. And Pete Rose only bet on his own team, which is not a point shaping situation of any kind. And again, different discussion for a different day. But I don't know that it really increases the worry that much more. However, I will not be surprised at some point in time to see a collegiate athlete doing this and us finding out about it. All right, let's get into the the main James, point. James, yeah, what do you got? Uh, what do you got? Give me something. Yeah, I was just I was just going to add one final point is is in football it's be very difficult to point shave. I feel like in basketball it's going to be something that you would see where you have less players and some of these top players have much more of an impact on how the game turns out. I mean, even think about Teddy Dupay 15 20 years ago for the University of Florida basketball that got in trouble with gambling. So, even when it was uh, illegal, there still were players that were able to circumvent those laws and also paid the penalty for that. Yeah, and people are going to find ways to cheat all the time, right? This podcast isn't about bag men, but obviously the three of us have different opinions on bag men and how many there are. But I don't think any of us think there aren't any people paying athletes for stuff. I think we maybe disagree on how many people are doing that. 
It will be the same with college gambling. Whatever number of people you think are point shaving or doing things nefariously, that number's probably going to remain about the same throughout time. It's not going to significantly change. You're probably not going to wind up seeing a 10-fold increase in point shaving. You're going to see about the same level because if you look at data in crime, it tends to more or less stay pretty consistent unless you wind up getting like a massive socioeconomic shift or you know society goes in one direction over the other or whatever the case may be. But if your society remains lawful and steady and solid, you kind of have this level of people that will do certain things that are against the law that remains pretty constant. So, you know, I think for coaches, it is one more thing to worry about. But at the end of the day, it shouldn't be anything big. All right, let's get into some goodness here. We're going to first walk through the Vegas over-under line. And we're going to talk about what the season total wins are predicted to be for each team. So that's going to be order number one. Then we will talk about how the SEC media predicted the order of finish, which is similar, but not totally the same. And that will give us a pretty comprehensive walkthrough of what we think. So the game's going to be simple. You're either going to take the over or the under. Essentially, you're buying or you're selling, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, Each one of these teams' total wins. And we're going to start in the SEC West, and we'll save the East for last. We'll start with the West, where Vegas has Bama at 11.5 wins this season. Tyler, we'll start with you. Are you going over or under that win total for Bama? Over. JT? Yeah, I'm going to go under on that one. And and I think it's part of what I was talking about earlier with Steve Sarkeesian, part of the fact that they do play a relatively difficult schedule. Um, I mean, they have Alabama, or not the most difficult non-conference, but they still have to play at Auburn, at A&M, and LSU at home. I, I I think they may end up with 10 or 11 wins this year. Tyler, you took the over. Why? This is probably one of the best Alabama teams they've had. I mean, like they're big time playmakers. Jerry Judy is now a year older. Tua's now a year older. Their defense is going to be really, really good. I I think, like you said earlier, the only Clemson probably has their best team ever still too. And if it was different years, you'd be like, oh, Alabama's going to win it. So I feel like just hearing your comments earlier, you're going to say over. Yeah, Auburn to me is a question mark. LSU, like we said, Coach O, uh, I don't know. Um, Texas A&M is an interesting game because I think Jimbo Fisher's a, a really good coach, uh, but it and it is the second year. But I don't know if Jimbo has all the pieces there yet. I just think Alabama is going to be good. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about what Steve's going to do, but like we we said earlier, he won with Mac. I mean, he won with butter teeth, right? So. I, I don't I don't I don't see how they don't win more than more than that. Eleven point five games, twelve game regular season, extra game in the SEC championship game. That's what you're looking at for this Vegas season over under. You don't get to include the postseason. It's a virtual certainty for me that Alabama's going to be in the SEC championship game. So that means they have to lose two games. In their 13-game schedule, they have to go 11-2 and two not to make that 11.5 mark. I think that's unlikely. If you look at their schedule, I think they have three regular season games they could legitimately potentially lose. And then they could face Georgia in the SEC championship game, and they could lose that one. So if they lose one game in the regular season, and they head to the SEC championship game, that's a coin flip. I think there's a better chance they win all their regular season games and lose to Georgia if they lose anywhere in the SEC title, and that still gets them to 12 wins. 
Alabama in the past five years, four out of those five years has won more than 11 and a half games with, I think, a weaker team than what they have this year. They are facing stiffer competition in Georgia from the East. So certainly that does change the game a little bit. 11 and a half is obviously an incredibly high bar. However, I like this team. I'm not going to bet against Nick Saban. The bonus game of the SEC title pushes this over the edge for me. I think they get to 12. LSU's at 9. 12 game season, LSU's at 9. They get a push if they lose 3. What do you got, JT? So I think this is going to be determined the at Texas game. If LSU beats Texas, I think you go over. If LSU loses that game, I think you go under for a couple of different reasons. I think that takes a ton of wind out of their sails. Uh, They certainly play a hard schedule as well. Their second game of the year is at Texas. They play Florida, uh, Mississippi State, um, Auburn all at home. They play A&M at home. They do play BAM on the road. That being said, I do think they go over, which means I think they beat Texas at Texas. Uh, But I think that game will determine if they end up um, getting double-digit wins or not this year. I'll have to agree with that. I think I have to. Th- I, I I agree that the over. Um, I think the Texas game, as JT said, can be interesting. Um, I actually think it's our game that could be the deciding factor because they play Texas early. Uh, they still get like basically three easy games after that, and then they play us, and then they have their gauntlet of just a bloody schedule. So they got Mississippi state after us, Auburn, Alabama, and then Texas A&M at the end. So I think our game can dictate kind of the direction. Maybe they go for that over and under. What about you, James? I'm going push. I'm taking nine wins. I think they push this. I think their schedule's tough. I don't believe in that order on after this year, if they wind up exceeding this expectation, I think I will, I will start to believe in that product. But for now I like a push there. Nine wins feels exactly right. Auburn is at eight wins. Gus Malzahn, JT, that he's your boy, over or under? So Auburn's been doing this seesaw thing for Gus Malzahn, where it seems like he has a great year, then a bad year, then a great year, then a bad year. And right now, it's certainly, he had a bad year last year, so it should be a great year. Uh, eight wins feels about right for them. Um, they, they open up with Oregon. They're at A&M. They play at Florida, at LSU in the middle of the season, and then they finish up with Georgia and Bama. I'm probably going to take the under simply because the more losses they have, I think it becomes a compounding effect, and and everybody will be screaming for Gus Malzahn's job. They don't have a quarterback right now. I do think there will be a bump in the play calling with Malzahn, but I I don't see them turning this corner, and I think uh, they'll be in the market for a new coach by the end of this year. Yep. I'm gonna take a. I'm gonna take a push. I think eight sounds good. I, I think that's right where they're at. I think there's a slew of games you could probably say are a win loss maybe, um, and I think they, there's games that they could win that may not not necessarily think they're gonna win, and there's games that they could lose that they probably should have won. So I'm gonna push at eight. Yeah, you figure Auburn. If they lose to Oregon, then if you bet the over, you're feeling really bad about yourself on the on the season opener because I think that's the snowball effect that everyone dreads, right? Nobody nobody wants that. Then after that, they go to Lane, Kent State. Assuming they beat Oregon, right? They go to Lane, Kent State, then at A&M. Another early season chance to lose one. Then they go Mississippi State, Auburn. I mean, sorry, Florida, Arkansas. Arkansas is a win. LSU, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama. 
I don't know. I feel like it's what JT said. I'm going to take the under on this one. It's either going to be way over or it's going to be under because they collapse. There's really a push feels right, but I think emotionally this will be the end of a roller coaster for them if they get anywhere around that eight number. And for that reason, I'm going to take the under, but nobody has any idea what Auburn's going to do. I think the real answer is I, I wouldn't bet Auburn season. Texas A&M, seven and a half. They have an absolutely manically difficult schedule which is a large reason why they're at 7.5. What do you got? Uh, I think uh, Texas A&M, I, I was always skeptical of Jimbo. I think I'm on the Jimbo train. This is the second season. Um, there's usually good improvement in the second season, um, and it's at 7.5. I think I'm going to take the over on this. I think he gets the 8. They do have a tough schedule. I think they lose to, uh, to Alabama. Um, I think he could give Georgia a run for their money. Um, but obviously that would be a loss. Possibly LSU is interesting and they play Clemson. So there are a bunch of games that, yeah, they could like lose all of them and really bad, but I, I'm going to give credit to Jimbo. I think Jimbo's a better coach than some of the, some of these teams. And, um, I'm going to go with eight wins. I think they get to eight. So Texas A&M, in my opinion, by far has the most difficult schedule in the entire country. You are at the number one best team in Clemson. You host the number two best team in Alabama, and then you are at the number three best team in Georgia. And then, oh, by the way, you also have to play LSU or at LSU and Auburn this year. They have an unbelievably difficult schedule. I do think Kelly Mond is a good quarterback. I do think Jimbo Fisher is a great coach, and I think he's going to get those guys playing well. And bold prediction number one here, I do think he w- Texas A&M will beat one of either Clemson, Alabama, or Georgia this year. And I do think he's going to end up going over seven and a half wins. I think they're going to end up right around eight or nine. Yeah, I, I think that Jimbo is great, obviously. I've said this a lot on the podcast. I continue to believe that's the case. I think he will exceed seven and a half. I think he's a better coach than a lot of the teams he's facing. And he'll lose some games, of course, to the teams that have better talent than he does. But I believe in Jimbo. I like seven and a half. I think if this went to eight, it'd be more tricky. But the fact they're giving you that half game seems like a good buy. I like that one. Also at seven and a half is Mississippi State. Tyler, what do you got? Mississippi State. Uh, I know that's your boy. Um, I went blank. I can't even remember Joe, his name. Joe Moorhead. Moorhead. Do not forget Joe Moorhead, my boy. Remember him always. Exactly. Uh, I, what was, what was the over under again? Seven and a half. I I think I'm going to go with under I'm selling. I'm not sold on Moorhead. I thought he, he tried to take Mississippi state and make them a team that he wanted to run in the first year without his players there. And I thought that was a big coaching error instead of trying to take with what he had at QB and Fitzgerald and making him what he actually is, which is not a pocket passing quarterback. So I'm definitely going to take the under. They they have a pretty tough schedule being in the West. Uh, I mean, LSU can beat them. Texas A&M can beat them. Alabama can beat them. They do have the, their biggest thing is they don't play anybody tough in the, in the East. Uh, they got um, Tennessee, which who knows what's going to happen in that game. And then they play Kentucky. So, I'm just not sold on Moorhead, so I'm going to go with under. 
I like Moorhead. Yeah. I, I think he's going to take a step up, and I'm jumping in for a second here to tee you up, uh, JT, with what you're going to say. I really want to take the over here because I really like Moorhead, but I think there's too much transition right now in year two for that program. They're still transitioning to what he wants to do, which is still very, very, very different than what Dan Mullen did. And I think he likes his quarterback this year. I think he likes where he's going. But again, the SEC, the schedule he plays, the difficulty he faces. If I'm saying A&M is going to do it because of Jimbo and the better talent they have there, even if I like Moorhead, there's too many unproven here for me to take the over. So I'm going to take the under. I think it'll be really close. I think they win seven games. I think they're right there. JT, what do you got? Sell, 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 sell. They have a new quarterback coming in. They lost a number of their top talent in the first and second round of the NFL draft. Questions about their D-line. They play in the SEC West. Yes, they may have easier points from the East. I don't think they get to eight wins. Uh, Yes, I think they'll probably end up with that six or seven wins, but I'm I'm not the believer that you are in Joe Moorhead. I'm not the believer in Mississippi State, and I do not think they are turning a corner. It makes me sad, but uh, you know Joe, Joe Moorhead is <laughs> he's unproven, but just keep an eye, keep an eye on Joe. All right, moving on down the list in order of finish here, we have quite a drop to Arkansas. Chad Morris, a guy that I liked at SMU, uh, five and a half wins this year for Arkansas. Over or under, Tyler? Uh, five and a half. Hmm. So that means if I go over six. You know what? I'm going to take the over. I think it gets to six wins this year. I think he started to look a little bit better towards the end of the year last year. They started to do some stuff. Um, they were to put some points on Alabama. Um, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the over. Uh, the team the teams in the East he plays are Missouri and Kentucky. Both of those are winnable games, and then most his out of conference games are super easy. So I'm going to. I'm gonna take a chance and go with the over. Yeah, I like so over I, here. I, do I like over here too, and I'm jumping in, JT, because I'm mad that you don't like Joe Moorhead. Um, but <laughs> I like the over on Chad Morris. I think they get like six. That's their goal. They're really trying to get bowl eligible. I think maybe they get six and six, or maybe they get six and seven. And they slide into bowl eligibility. But I'm, I'm taking it. What do you got? Yeah, I do like Chad Morris. I think they're going in the right direction. I think they're still very, very young. I'm pretty sure they brought in the quarterback from SMU that Chad Morris had worked with. Um, they certainly have four very, very winnable games in the uh, non-conference play. I don't think they're going to win two SEC games, so I'm going to actually take the under on this one as well. Last but not least, Old Miss. A guy in, in Matt Luke who I like as their coach, actually. I've talked about this a lot. Alan disagrees, but I actually think he's quietly done pretty good work there given everything that's gone on in his tenure. They're at five. Tyler, over, under. Man, they make these pretty hard to... I'm going to go... I'm, I'm going to go over. I think he could get to six. And I say that because he, he the, the teams on the East that he plays are Vanderbilt and Missouri. Um not saying that Missouri is a bad team, uh, but and then his at a conference is uh, he does play Memphis. Memphis can be tricky. I think I'm going to stick with the six. I think he could possibly get to six. Um, he's he's an interesting guy. His offenses look great. Sometimes they come out, they look their team looks pretty good, and then other times they come out and they just get slaughtered. So I'm not sold on him yet. Uh, um, I'm waiting to see more 
information. I need more seasons under the belt to, to figure out how I feel on on Luke. What's interesting about Ole Miss is they have Matt Corral as their quarterback, which Gator fans will remember as somebody that we thought was going to be our quarterback there for a hot minute. Um, they do play a relatively difficult not non-conference schedule, uh, playing Memphis, playing Cal, which Cal's not going to light up the world, but certainly somebody that would compete with Ole Miss. Probably also going to take the under on this, but I wouldn't be surprised with a push. Um, but but I agree with you, James, as well. I, I do like uh, Matt Luke for what it's worth, worth, but I do think they've been way too inconsistent all of last season. And Matt Corral screams inconsistency, in my opinion. Matt Corral screams over to me, JT. Screams over. He's taking the over. This was the number one pass offense in the SEC last year. I loved their offense. I love, love, love how they run offense over there. They struggle to win. They have no defense. They're not ready yet, no doubt. But I think Matt Corral, he's getting rave, and I mean rave reviews from Matt Luke. Now, I don't put any stock into what coaches say about guys, but when a guy loves his quarterback this much, that translates into an over. All right, let's move on to the East. In the East, number one, the top dog. We all hate them. Georgia. Alabama had 11 and a half. And just to tweak Georgia, Vegas puts Georgia at 11. JT, over, under. This one is a push. I wouldn't touch this one. Uh, Georgia plays Notre Dame week three at home. That's certainly going to be a good game. Notre Dame is good enough to give Georgia a run for their money and beat them. Uh, obviously, uh, Florida is going to give them a, a tough chance, time. And, and quite frankly, we could have beaten them last year. And I'm sure we'll dive into that a little bit more when we start doing predictions for the year. Um, but that's a game that's losable at Auburn and then Texas A&M toward the end of the season as well. I think it's a push. I don't see them going 10 wins, and I also don't see them running the table either. So you said the over and under is at 11, correct? 11. James? That's correct, 11. I am going to go with under. One thing, I hate Georgia. Uh, second thing, uh, I think Texas A&M can beat them. I think uh, Auburn can beat them. I think we're going to beat them. I think Notre Dame can beat them. I'm not saying that the, all those teams are going to beat them, but I, I think they get to 10 wins. And I think they missed the SEC championship. You heard it first from me. Mm, that's big. That's the big news there. I, I think 11 is tough. They have a really, really tough schedule. Uh, I think they're very, very good. But again, these are college kids to say they're only going to slip up one time, especially when they can still slip up twice and make it to the SEC championship game. That's part of their problem is I think they really can. I'm going to take a push, though. I like this Georgia team. I like Georgia. I like Kirby Smart. Uh, I, I don't like them. I like them analytically. And I'm going to say push. I think they get to 11, which makes me sad, but I think they do. All right, next on this list is Florida. Florida's interesting. I'll tee it off by saying that we have nine wins in the Vegas over-under, but we're interesting because depending on what sites you read, our schedule is either one of the toughest, uh, but certainly it's one of the top 25 toughest. Uh, some people have us in the top two or three toughest. Uh, but regardless of what that is, that tends to favor into whether you think it's going to be an over-under. JT, Florida at nine wins, what do you got? That's easy, over. 
and we'll talk more about Florida and my predictions a little bit later. I think it's a very easy. I think the variance that you're seeing on some of these sites is how they're rating Florida State and Miami. I don't put any stock into either one of those teams. I think we win both of those pretty handily. I would certainly back the truck up and take Florida with the over here. If JT did not say over, I was going to have a panic attack. Definitely 100% over. Uh, I think, I think, I'm not sure what my prediction would be at this time, but at nine wins, I think what Dan Mullen did in year one, transitioning to year two, uh, opening up the playbook more for Philippi Franks. Franks looks a lot more confident at media days. He sounded more confident. He just has a little bit of that swagger. Year two, most coaches and teams start to excel since they've been under it under the program for a year now. So I'm definitely going with the over James. I'm going to abstain from saying anything about this uh, because we're going to talk about it during the opening week when Allen is in the pod. I will say that when you look at our schedule, it feels difficult to make the case for under analytically period. It's very, very hard to make a case for under you can make a case for push, but making a case for under, I think is hard. We're going to be favored in almost all of our games. So that alone makes it tricky. And I think that's why we're at nine. I also think that's why our schedule is actually very favorable. I don't look at our schedule and think it's one of the harder ones personally. Uh, I think there's plenty of other schedules in the SEC that are much harder than ours. So I think people that are writing those articles maybe just don't know the SEC. But I'm very much looking forward to what both of you think about the total win-loss record, which we'll do at the end of this, what is now turning into a mega-sode. So congratulations, JT and Tyler. We have about 15 minutes left probably of recording some good stuff here for the fans, and we're going to hit maybe two hours. So, you know, we're, we're pushing for the longest podcast in Gator Nation football history. Next up is Mizzou. Of course, Kellen Bryant, the splash big news there. They're also on a still postseason ban, which some people think will be lifted, and they are at eight and a half wins for their over-under. They have a absurdly easy schedule. They're almost certainly going to be undefeated heading into November, of which they have a very, very good record in November under Odom. What do you got, JT? Over under eight and a half. I agree with you about the easy schedule. Yes, it's interesting with with some of this controversy uh, going on with academic and and ineligibility for the bowl game. I know they're still trying to repeal it. The way the NCAA has been soft on pretty much anything that gets appealed seems to these days get overturned. I wouldn't be shocked if Missouri would be able to play for a bowl game. I agree with you on their schedule. They play Ole Miss and Arkansas in the West. I think this is a pretty easy over. I, I could easily see them with 10 wins this season. Yeah, I agree. Looking at their schedule, they don't have a hard schedule at all. Their biggest games are us and Georgia. Um, I'm going to go with over two. Uh, I'm going to put them right at nine wins. If your boy Will Greer was still at West Virginia, I would put them under. I love any mention of Will Greer. Well done, Tyler. You get the podcasting co-host uh, winner of the day award for that mention because anytime we can talk about Will, it's a win on this podcast. And unfortunately for West Virginia, they don't have him, although the quarterback they do have is on the Heisman odds list, and he's not that far down. So some people are thinking big things out of West Virginia this year. I like the over for Missouri, too. Their schedule is so, so, so easy. Kellen Bryant, although he doesn't throw very well, is very consistent and should be able to handle teams he's favored to beat. And if they do that, they're going to be really close to that 9-1 that mark. So I like them there. I expect this line maybe to move to 9 
before the season actually starts. So if you're actually looking to place a bet, do so quickly. Kentucky, after a great season last year, down to six and a half wins for the over-under, 6.5 JT. What do you like? So, yeah, they went nine wins last year. They certainly lost a lot of talent. They lost Benny Snell on the offense. They lost Josh Allen uh, to my Jacksonville Jaguars, who I think will also be a good Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.